you would take your Bibles this morning, I would draw our attention to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 this morning, we will be in verses 57 through 80. Luke 1, 57 through 80. Silence. 400 years of silence. With the ending of the final prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, there were 400 years of silence. No word from the Lord. No one saying, Thus saith the Lord. Not so much as even a whisper. God, are you there? God, where have you gone? God, after so much, after all that you have done, where are you? Have you left us for good? Are you ever coming back? God, if you are really there, say something. God, if you are there, show yourself. God, if you are there, do something, anything. To say that the silence was deafening would be an understatement. In that silence, God's people were waiting and waiting and waiting. There were those who had not given up on God. They had not lost confidence in God. They had persevered in their faith in Him Even though he was silent, they persevered because they knew he was faithful. They persevered because they knew God would speak again, reveal himself again, show himself again, do something again. They knew that Malachi was not the end of the story there must be more. They knew there would be more because God had said so. And so God, 400 years later, speaks. He breaks the silence. He ends the waiting. He shows himself again. And he breaks his silence with a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest priest who served in the temple, a priest who had the angel Gabriel appear to him and bring God's message, bring God's good news to his ears. And so Zechariah, as a priest, was chosen to serve the Lord in the temple and to go in before the Lord and to offer incense to the Lord that represented the the prayers of the saints. Zechariah had not had an easy life, though. His wife Elizabeth was barren. 
not able to conceive. You can imagine the incense that he lit to represent the prayers of the saints. How many times he had prayed, Lord, give us a child. Open my wife's womb. And this day, as he was there in the temple, the angel Gabriel came to him with good news. Your wife will conceive and bear a son. and You shall name him John. Even though Elizabeth was old, even though she was barren, even though she was past childbearing years, this great news that she would conceive. And how does Zechariah respond when the silence is broken finally by God? How shall this be because I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years? And then Gabriel says this, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and will be unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah, the one who had been waiting for God to break his silence, when God does break his silence, how does he respond? He didn't believe the word that was spoken to him. It got me thinking how many, how many people celebrate Christmas in unbelief. With such great news that's proclaimed. Zechariah, because he did not believe this message, was unable to speak. And everything that Gabriel had told Zechariah came to pass. Elizabeth conceived that she was going to give birth. And then we read in Luke 1. So let's read these verses together this morning. Would you stand with me as I read God's word out of reverence for him. Luke 1, beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. 
And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this word is food from you. May we take it and eat it this morning and be satisfied by what you would say to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Zechariah had been unable to speak for nine months, at least nine months. He had been unable to speak. Now, I don't know if you've been around someone before, and you, maybe you've spent some time with them, and then, and then one day you hear them speak more than maybe you've heard them speak before. And it catches you off guard. I didn't know that this person could talk like this. I didn't know that. I've never heard them speak like this before. I've never heard them say something before. Here's Zechariah, nine months, unable to speak anything. Where would you expect the word of the Lord to come from? You expect the word of the Lord to come from someone who had been mute for nine months? It's in this event that we see That Elizabeth bears her son. They rejoice. God has shown her great mercy in her old age. He's removed the shame and the reproach that was upon her because she was a barren woman. And as custom, they bring their child the eighth day to be circumcised. What's a little unusual is the naming. Usually the naming of the child happens at birth. But now it's been eight days. This child has not yet been named And so they come 
the circumcision. They say, what are you going to name him, Elizabeth? What's his name going to be? And they expected her to say, Zachariah Jr., after his father. But no, she said, he shall be called John. None of their relatives were called John. There's no history in their lineage. Anyone has ever been called John before? Why John? Well, Elizabeth, are you sure? Let's, let's get Zachariah's input on this. And so they bring Zachariah, and it says that they make signs at him. I find that interesting because we're told that Zachariah is mute, which means he cannot speak. But it would also appear that Zachariah was deaf. <laughs> you wouldn't make signs at someone to try to communicate with them if they weren't deaf as well. You would just say, Zachariah, what would you like him to be called? And so it appears that Zechariah was not only mute, that he was not able to speak, but it also appears that Zechariah was deaf. He was unable to hear. And he calls for a writing tablet. A tablet in those days would have been a piece of wax on a wooden tablet, wooden board, and he would write on it and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. They were amazed. I take this to mean that they saw something miraculous happen. In the birth count of Jesus, we see this idea of people wondering four times. And each time it's a sense of amazement. It's the sense of something has happened that we cannot explain. It is miraculous. It is supernatural. And we see this throughout the Gospels that Jesus goes and he does these miracles. And people stand in wonder of him. And so I believe then that when these people here, when it says that in verse 63, and they all wondered, that they believed that they had experienced something supernatural, that they had experienced something miraculous, that Elizabeth and Zechariah would agree on a name that they had never talked about. And what happens when Zechariah writes those words? His lips are loosed. His ears are opened. And he's filled with the Spirit and he prophesies. This is the first time you read of prophecy in the book. And it comes from this priest. Imagine something miraculous happening. His mouth is opened and what is the first thing that he does? He breaks the silence of God to the people. He prophesies. He, he speaks the words of the Lord. After being unable to speak for so long, this prophecy was coming from a most unexpected place. A priest filled with the Holy Spirit just recently was unable to speak, unable to say anything. But what's even more unexpected is the message of this prophecy. What's even more fascinating is that Zechariah here, as he gives this prophecy, who would we think he would talk about? We think he would talk about his son, John. I just, I just had a son, John. I'm going to tell you all about him. 
What Zechariah says here is he doesn't talk a lot about John and a little bit about Jesus. What Zechariah does is he talks a lot about Jesus and a little bit about John. How amazing this message is that Zechariah gives to us, this prophecy that he gives to us. And I'm amazed by this message because it's so often different than the message that we hear around us today. What's the message? What's the message that you hear at this time, at Christmas? Here are sometimes the messages that we hear, and and I think this is completely different than Zachariah's message. Zachariah didn't say, I'm putting the Christ back in Christmas. Zechariah didn't say, Jesus is the reason for the season. I'm not one for nice little catchy platitudes. Those sound nice and simple. Jesus isn't a nice catchy little saying. Those sound simple, easy, but my fear is that when we say things like that, that we make Jesus just a part of Christmas, when Jesus is more than just a part of Christmas, Jesus is more than just the reason for the season, He is the reason for every season, He is the very reason for life itself. We must not make Jesus merely a religious piece of the Christmas puzzle But we must see God's comprehensive work of salvation that is accomplished through the coming of Jesus Christ. How unexpected when Zechariah prophesies that this word of praise to the Lord is about Jesus Christ. It's about God's comprehensive work of salvation through Jesus. Jesus is not just some important add-on that must be in place. No, Jesus is everything. And how important for us today to hear that we don't need just to add a little Jesus to our life. I'm not saying to you this morning, you just need to have a little more Jesus at Christmas. It's a very dangerous and serious problem if you think basically your life can go on the same way And that you can just add a little bit of Jesus. That's not what it means to be saved. That is not Christianity. Too many think everything will be okay if I just have that that piece of the puzzle right. You may be able to try to add a little Jesus, but let me tell you, that is not what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is not what it means to be saved. You cannot make Jesus a pawn for your own convenience for you to fit him into your life when it is convenient. You will say, well, Jesus will be there when I need him to be there. But do you see? That then do you come to Jesus on your own terms, in your own way. Jesus is nothing more than just a pawn that you want to use for your own advantage to make yourself feel good. But what does Jesus demand? Jesus demands complete 
commitment and devotion, a complete and utter reorientation of life. Jesus demands everything, all of you. Jesus demands you to take up your cross, to follow him. It means that you have to die. You have to die to self. You have to die to the old way of living. Jesus is not a part that we add on to life. Jesus completely restructures, reorients, rebuilds, transforms life, everything. Even more, Jesus takes dead, lifeless people and makes them alive. It's here that we must see the comprehensive work of God in salvation that he does through Jesus Christ. Not just a little add-on. God does not just change one part of our lives through his son. No, he changes life itself through his son. And Zechariah's prophecy gives us this big picture of what God is doing through Jesus Christ to bring salvation to us. So, what is he doing Seven things this morning. My father-in-law calls that sermon suicide. I pray that I don't kill this sermon. Seven things this morning. God visits his people through Jesus. God visits his people through Jesus. That's the first thing that we see in Zechariah's prophecy, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's that time of year that often we have visitors, family members, friends, neighbors. We enjoy those visits, those visitors. But sometimes by the end, if maybe we're honest for a moment, we're not also sad to see the the taillights pull out of the driveway and, and drive off into the distance. We're ready for life to get back to normal, our regular schedule, our regular routine. Zechariah begins his prophecy giving praise and thanksgiving to God. Blessed be the God of Israel. He is blessing God for what God is doing, blessing God for the actions that he is taking. And the very reason why Zechariah is blessing God is because it says here, for he, for God, has visited And redeemed his people. God has not remained far off. God has not remained distant from his people. No, God came near to his people. The very presence of God himself has come near. It should have been a precious announcement to the people. God is near. God is close. God has come to us. God has made himself known. What a great announcement that God was close to his people. God is not only the transcendent God who is far above us, but God is also the imminent God who is with us, personal. Zechariah says that God visited and redeemed his people. I think those two ideas, visited and redeemed, are words that are closely Related, parallel ideas. They play off each other. To say that God has visited his people is to say that he actively did something for them. He visited them by redeeming them. And it reminds us of another time in Israel's history when God visited his people. God chose Moses, sent Moses to Israel, where they were held captive in Egypt. And then it says this in Exodus 4.31, 
And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that, they had, and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. The people of Israel saw God visit them on account of their affliction. And we see that God does not just sympathize with their affliction. No, God actively takes their affliction away. He redeems them. He leads them by His steadfast love out of Egypt. This redemption, however, came at a price. The price of the Passover lamb, which was sacrificed. We must realize redemption is costly because redemption shows that there must be a price that is paid. Something must be given in order to redeem. What does God give? God has provided the promised king, the promised Messiah, the one who would be born and rule and reign. God has demonstrated his power in raising up this horn of salvation. That's this idea of of power, a horn of salvation. God has been mighty to do this, and this is happening in the house of his servant David. So this is a king who's coming like David came, who is in the line and lineage of David. This is what he had promised in Jeremiah 33, 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of of the house of Israel. And so here it is, coming to fruition. The Messiah King is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. This is how God has visited and redeemed His people. And it's through King Jesus and through the sacrifice of the King Himself for the people. God had visited and redeemed His people through Jesus Christ. But God visited and redeemed and stayed with His people. This is what we really need. Not just a God who visits and leaves, but a God who redeems and stays with His people. Who will never leave His people. Who will never forsake His people. To know such a commitment by God to His people only comes through knowing and believing in Jesus Christ. Number two this morning, God saves us from our enemies through Jesus. God saves us from our enemies through Jesus. Do you have enemies? Do you have to think long and hard if you even have any enemies? And if you do, who would you consider to be an enemy? If you were to ask the Jews at the time of this prophecy... Who are their enemies? The answer would be pretty quick and pretty easy. For many of the Jews, they saw the occupation by Rome in their land as an occupation of the enemy. So the Romans, they're the enemies. They've set up their government in our land. They're uh, getting tax from us. They're taking our money from us. We're not free as we want to be. The Romans are our enemies. That's who had enslaved them. That's who had, had held or was holding them captive. The prophecy here says that God will be, that God will, will save his people from their enemies. They will be rescued from those who hate them. 
And that was a problem for some of Jesus' disciples because they even asked sometimes, Jesus, when are you going to overthrow the Romans? Jesus, when are you going to wipe them out? When are you going to set up your kingdom? When are we going to take up our swords and fight? But is that why Jesus came? Did Jesus come to overthrow the Romans? That's what people expected. But there is a bigger enemy that we needed to be saved from. An enemy more powerful than the Romans or any human empire. It was the enemy of sin and death that Jesus came to save us from. It was our sin that we were held captive to. It was our sinful flesh that we only could obey before Christ came and made it possible for us to be released from our captivity to sin. He released us from the most powerful enemy in our life, our sin. And it's here that we also need to view this statement that Zechariah makes here as already but not yet. Has Jesus delivered us from our enemies? Yes. But we still look forward to a final future day when all enemies will be put under his feet. He has not yet subjected all enemies to his rule. He has begun. He began through his life, death, and resurrection. And there is no question that one day he will put all of God's enemies under his feet. Who are God's enemies? You know, it's interesting. If you read 1 John It says there that the enemies of God are those who would be friends with this world. Those who resist worshiping God and worshiping things instead, things that are other than God. But one day, finally and fully, all of the enemies will be vanquished. 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26 says this, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In the end, even death, the last enemy, will be completely undone. And it's important that we understand that we might still receive oppression today. We still, as followers of Jesus Christ, might face persecution today simply because we hold to the name of Jesus Christ but I love what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5 11 through 12 blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad why for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you God saves us from our enemies through Jesus. Number three this morning, God keeps all his promises through Jesus. God keeps all his promises through Jesus. I'm sure if I were to ask each of us this morning, there may have been times in our life where promises have been made, but promises have been broken. Promises were not kept. Promises that maybe you depended upon Promises that let you down, that failed. 
promises that one time provided so much hope, but those hopes were dashed. We're reminded here in Zechariah's prophecy that God made promises. God made promises to His people long ago to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. God had made promises to our fathers in the faith, that is, the fathers in the Old Testament. We see that the promises God made with His people came through a covenant. Covenant promises made in the midst of a relationship, like a marriage. People are married, they make a covenant with each other. It's based upon a relationship. I promise to do this. And the other party says, and I promise to do this. God had made certain promises, certain oaths. He had sworn things. And we remember that beautiful picture when God tells Abraham to gather these animals, to cut the animals in half, to make a pathway through the animals. And then God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And the picture is God walking through the path between these animals saying, I promise to do exactly what I say I will do, and if I don't, may I be like these animals who have been cut in two. God is faithful to keep His promises, even though Abraham's descendants were not always faithful. And so God sent the final offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the one who would secure all the promises made to Abraham, the one who would fulfill all the promises made by God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. How many of the promises of God? For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. If you want to know the dependability and faithfulness of God this morning, if you are questioning whether God can be trusted, if you are looking for someone in your life who will keep their word because you have been burned so many times by broken promises, the only kind of dependability, faithfulness, and trustworthiness you will be able to find in this universe comes through our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no one more dependable. There is no one more trustworthy. There is no one more faithful. Is your trust completely upon Him? Number four, God delivers us so we can serve Him through Jesus. God delivers us so we can serve Him through Jesus. We see here in verse 74 that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. There's a sense behind these verses that we have been freed. We've been freed from the hand of our enemies. God has done something to to bring us out from the grasp of their clutches so that we're then able to serve Him, so that we're able to live the life that He wants us to live. And that 
is one of service that's given to Him for His glory, for all that He has done, that we might serve Him. And then there is this, this qualitative words put on the end, without fear. I wonder how we think about serving God. We serve Him without fear. Who do you serve with fear? You serve a harsh taskmaster with fear. You serve them with fear because you're afraid of the repercussions that will fall upon you. If you don't serve them, you're afraid of the punishment that might be bestowed upon you because you have not served them or obeyed them. We are not those who serve God out of fear because He is not a harsh taskmaster. He is the loving, compassionate, gracious, merciful God. And we see His mercy over and over and over again in this passage. He is not giving people what they deserve. Why not? Because someone else will take the punishment for us. Because someone else, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, pleased God by becoming a curse for us so that we might receive the blessing of God. There are no repercussions that we're waiting for. There's no more punishment for us. There's no more wrath for us. We don't serve God out of fear. Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to serve God and to serve Him, as it says here, in holiness and righteousness. It is through our Savior's righteousness that He's given to us and is through His sanctifying work, which He carries out through the Holy Spirit, that we are now able to pursue holiness, to strive to be holy as He is holy. The blessing has come through Jesus Christ so that we might live the way that we were meant to live in our service to God, to honor Him, to praise Him, to give Him all the glory in everything. And all of that is based on the grace and the mercy that He has provided us in Jesus Christ. Is this the way that you view your life? That you get to serve God? That it is a privilege? That you don't have to serve Him out of fear? But you can serve Him out of love? Because He first loved you. Number five, God provides forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. God provides forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. There's an overall picture that Zechariah is providing us here in his prophecy. It's this one of restoration. God is restoring his people. And now, in verse 76, we see... John's part to play in being a prophet of the Most High. John, who we know as John the Baptist, was to speak for God. He was to be a prophet. He was to proclaim God's message to the people. And his primary task was to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, for the Messiah who was to come and to minister to the people. And John's main task was pointing people to Jesus Christ. Not pointing people to himself or his importance, but instead to the Savior. He was to tell the people of the salvation that this Messiah would bring. 
And he was to give them the foundational knowledge of the salvation that they were in need of and that, they could, and that could only be found in Christ. This is what was promised of John the Baptist in the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John was to do what exactly had been prophesied about him long ago. And this preparation was instrumental in the people's restoration because it told of the complete forgiveness of sins. The question that confronts us as we read this verse to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, how is God going to forgive our sins? Under the Old Testament, sacrifices were offered for the forgiveness of sin. In order for forgiveness of sin to take place, there had to be a shedding of blood. The problem the people encountered was that the forgiveness that they received wasn't fully effective. It wasn't complete. Why? They had to go back again and again with a lamb to offer to the Lord, to sacrifice to the Lord for the forgiveness of sin. They had to do this repeatedly. What is remarkable is the coming of the Messiah brings full forgiveness of sin, a complete forgiveness of sin. It would have been different than what these people had known before. The sacrifice who forgives completely, fully, and finally. This is why John would proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the perfect final sacrifice. He dealt with sin definitively. No other sacrifice is needed to be offered He is the better sacrifice. He is the best sacrifice. He is the only sacrifice we need in order to be forgiven. And we need to be forgiven in order to have access to God. This is what Christ has opened up for us. He's opened up the way for us now to have access to God, the holy God, and to His throne of grace. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How much, dear brother and sister, have you been forgiven by the Lord? You have been forgiven of all your sin. God has seen to your restoration through His Son, Jesus Christ. This forgiveness has come through God's tender mercy to you. Have you experienced this kind of complete, final, definitive forgiveness in your life? Oh Lord, if you would mark iniquities, who could stand? But God has taken away 
our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. Is this the forgiveness that you live in day in and day out, knowing that there is no other sacrifice now that you need to offer for the forgiveness of your sin? It's Christ's sacrifice and Christ's sacrifice alone that can bring this kind of forgiveness in your life. Number six, God shines light on our darkness through Jesus. God shines light on our darkness through Jesus. Beautiful picture. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. We're reminded of our desperate state. We are those sitting in darkness. We were those under the shadow of death. It reminds us again, it brings back our mind to the Old Testament, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Or Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Or Isaiah 42, 6 through 7, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now the light of the Lord Jesus Christ has shone upon us to deliver us from the domain of darkness that we were once in. Our darkness was a prison. But the light of the Messiah comes and frees us. Jesus has come to give the light of life. And John the Baptist bore witness to this light. It is the true light. And it's the light that cuts through the darkness, that dispels the darkness, that dispels the shadow of death in our life. So now we're able to follow him and live for him who is the light. What do you do? What do you do when you feel the darkness coming in on you, closing in on you, surrounding you? Where do you look? Where do you turn to in those moments? Do you look to Jesus Christ who is the light? Number seven this morning. God guides us to peace through Jesus. God guides us to peace through Jesus. The final line of Zechariah's prophecy promises peace. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Which leads us to two questions. First, what kind of peace do we need? And second, what kind of peace does the Lord provide? I do not think that these questions are so different. The peace that we need is the peace the Lord provides. After all, we would expect nothing less from the one who is called in Isaiah 9, the Prince of Peace. 
The way of peace is only able to come because the light of Christ has shone upon us. And the only way for us to be guided into the way of peace is that the greatest obstacle to our peace has been removed. And so what is the greatest obstacle to your peace? The peace that you need in your life this morning. What is the greatest obstacle? What is it that keeps you from peace in your life? Is it your circumstances? If everything went exactly how you wanted, if everything went exactly how you wanted it to go, then you would have peace, right? Is it the people around you? If everybody did exactly what I wanted them to do, treat me the way I wanted to be treated, then I'll have peace, right? It's easy to look at all of the external things in our life and think if they just lined up, if all those external things just lined up just right, then I would have peace. But the obstacle that keeps us from peace is our sin. We will never be on the way to peace until we see that we need that obstacle removed. It's only when our sin is dealt with. It's only when our sin is removed. It's only when we are justified before God that we can have peace with God. You will never be on the way to peace in your life if you do not have peace with God. And that peace is only provided by Jesus Christ. It's a peace which affects the entire of humanity because Christ has made a way for everyone who puts their belief and trust in Him to be at peace with God. So, if you look at your life and you don't see any peace and you wonder if there will ever be any peace, maybe you need to ask yourself a fundamental question today. Do I have peace with God? Because it's only when you have peace with God that you will be on the path of peace. There's one small detail I've held from us this morning, one important detail in this passage. It goes back to the name John. John means God is gracious. If there's anything that we see in this comprehensive work of salvation that God accomplishes through Jesus Christ, it's the fact that God is gracious. Zechariah's unexpected prophecy proves that God is gracious. It is all these facts that he has so worked in the life of the believer to demonstrate his graciousness to you. All that God has done for you. 
all that God has done to bring salvation. Let us not think that we need a little more Jesus in our lives, but let us see the fullness of salvation, which comes through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and completely overthrows our life and restores our life, even in the darkest and deadest of places. Jesus Christ shines the greatest and the brightest. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are gracious to us. Lord, we've seen this morning that we need your grace and that you provided that through the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who, who's looking for something to depend upon, who's looking for something to hope in, who's looking for something to believe in, who's looking to be restored, who sees their life and they see the darkness, and they feel the darkness, they don't have any light. Lord, if there's people here this morning who look at their life and they say, I don't have any peace I don't know where that comes from. I don't know how to find it. I can't get things right in my life to give me that peace. Lord, today that you would open up their eyes and see that light and peace and salvation is there for them if they would put their faith and trust in Jesus and let him be the king of their lives. That he would overthrow and reorient, reorient and restructure their lives. That he would take dead hearts and make them alive. That he can do that even now, today. And so, Lord, I pray if there is someone here that they would put their faith and their trust in him and that they would not wait because they will know no forgiveness. They will know no peace. They will know no light until they know Jesus Christ. Lord, may we, your people, rejoice in the salvation that you've given to us. And may that joy overflow and that people would see that Jesus isn't just a piece that we've added to our life. No, Jesus is everything in our lives. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.